two things before we start today's episode. First off, thank you for your continued interest in the show. And secondly, if you're interested in supporting us even further, we've put up a limited edition Essential Tremors t-shirt for sale that features our rarely used blue logo. Go to EssentialPodcast.com to get one. And I wasn't sure how cool that was for these, you know, clean little hearts. My boys toured the world with me, but in sheltered fashion. They, they only knew kindness and um, a kind of safety, uh, like a moral safety. <laughs> and I sat them down and said, you know, this... It's like Looney Tunes when you can't really fall off a cliff. <laughs> In real life, this would be different, and that's why we need these songs. And they looked at me like I was nuts and said, it's songs, Mom. <laughs> it's cartoons. It's songs. And what they meant was, was not a reductive sensibility that a child has, obviously. They are imagination, so their dreams are true, and... Even when they are absorbing crap, they have such a good attitude. They bring so much viscera to what they see in their room and on their screen. And um, the, if it's a big movie screen, then there is an elaborate facsimile going on. But they seem to appreciate that that's what it is because they have their own screen they are their eyes you before you forget that orientation this is essential tremors i'm lee gardner i'm matt byers the idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are we're not looking for favorite songs necessarily we're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. If I walk down this hallway tonight, it's too quiet, so I head through the dark and call you on the phone. Push your old numbers and let your house ring till I wake your ghost let him walk down your hallway it's not this quiet slide down your receiver sprint across the wire follow my number slide It's the blaze across my nightgown It's the phone's ring Starting with her work in the 1980s with her band Throwing Muses, the first U.S. band signed to seminal U.K. label 4AD, Kristen Hirsch has had a long and illustrious career as a songwriter. In addition to releasing 10 albums with the Muses, including this year's Sun Racket, She's released multiple solo records, as well as recordings by her band, 50 Foot Wave. She's also authored three books, one for children, a memoir, 
and a reflection on her friendship with the late Vic Chestnut. The first song Hearst chose as being formative for her was Whole Heap of Little Horses, a traditional ballad performed here by Texas Gladden, which was also covered by Hirsch on her 1998 solo album, Murder, Misery, and Then Goodnight. Sandy, you want to go bye-bye? You want to go bye-bye? You want, you want uh, Granny Ma to sing Whole Heap of Little Horses? Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, little baby. When you wake, get some cake and ride them pretty little horses. Black and a bay, sorrel and a gray, whole heap of little horses. Black and a bay. The first song is Whole Heap of Little Horses. Um, my dad taught me. My parents grew up on Lookout Mountain in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my lullabies were Appalachian folk songs. Uh, but I also lived in a commune, so there was, you know, anybody who played at Woodstock, except maybe Sean Ono, <laughs> also on in the house. And that combination of sonic vocabularies has I'm sure informed my sensibilities but what I continue to learn from is is not the genre of Appalachian folk songs more the the psychosocial aspect of what it means for humans to make music as a collective and it seems to be in opposition to the recording industry. That there was a faceless construct that we could all live and voice if we each took part in a song. That there was maybe a single visionary at the root of this material, but that a person was not going to attract attention or money because of music. And so it became a shareable phenomenon a lot of these were Celtic in origin, and so you know, the original player was lost. And I love that. As a lost player, <laughs> that's always been my goal. Invisibility in music makes it very difficult to work within the constraints of the industry, of course, but it keeps your heart pure as you work toward that. So you knew these songs as a, as a, as a child. Um, at what point, if you can put your finger on this, did you sort of understand what they actually were and, and sort of their importance, I guess? That was in my bones, I suppose. It would be in all of us, really. We're all born musical. That impulse is often warped by you know, marketing. Um, but we speak music for some reason, and I'm still intrigued as to why it's such a spontaneous impulse. In the hands of real and raw lives, it's, you know, it's in all of our bones. It's just that I have, over the years, come to articulate that as being a conundrum in this consumerist culture. 
So it's nice to carry songs like this um, in my heart and in my ears and know that there, there wasn't always lying. There wasn't always manipulation. There wasn't always egoic involvement in sound. And that's what music is. That's the definition of music. Uh, I know that you did record this uh, for one of your own records, which was, uh, it was all Appalachian ballads, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, my kids didn't know these songs that I had grown up with. And I actually just recorded this, these songs for them. And they were in the studio. I have four sons. And I, while I was listening to them, I, I was remembering uh, that a lot of them are about drunk guys killing their girlfriends. <laughs> and I wasn't sure how cool that was for these, you know, clean little hearts. My boys toured the world with me, but in sheltered fashion. They, they only knew kindness and um, a kind of safety, uh, like a moral safety. <laughs> and I sat them down and said, you know, this... It's like Looney Tunes when you can't really fall off a cliff. <laughs> In real life, this would be different, and that's why we need these songs. And they looked at me like I was nuts and said, it's songs, Mom. <laughs> it's cartoons. It's songs. And what they meant was, was not a reductive sensibility that a child has, obviously. They are imagination, so their dreams are true, and... Even when they are absorbing crap, they have such a good attitude. They bring so much viscera to what they see in their room and on their screen. And um, the, if it's a big movie screen, then there is an elaborate facsimile going on. But they seem to appreciate that that's what it is because they have their own screen. They are their eyes you, before you forget that orientation. You know, uh, it's funny. I, I also grew up in East Tennessee, um, uh, Maryville and Knoxville. And um, it's always a little weird when the song that's most associated with your hometown, and, you know, in this case, Knoxville Girl, the old ballad, is about a guy hitting his girlfriend in the head with a stick and killing her and throwing her body in the river. It's not, you know, it's, you're proud of it, but you're not exactly comfortable with that, I guess. That's what music does too. I have to say, I mean, there's some crappy folk songs, which is, that's nice too, that there's always been this misapprehension. <laughs> Even if you're trying to play to the room, you're going to miss the point. You're playing to something. And that happened then. You can hear even in Alex Lomax, I mean, Alan Lomax recordings, um, that there is, uh, there are show-offs and there are visionaries and there always have been. But this idea that music can take us to the devil within and the devil without and make it beautiful is, uh, it's almost Buddhist, the Buddhist on fire, that we have no choice but to be in it. And if you aren't looking at it, it's going to take you by surprise. And letting go is the best way to do that. It's also 
focus, and music will focus on a story, whether you want that story to be lived or not, and whether you want it to happen to you or not. Schadenfreude plays a role too, I'm sure. Darn if I don't sit the old cow too. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep a little baby. The second song Hirsch chose as essential to her formation as an artist was Time of No Reply by Nick Drake. Summer was gone and the heat died down And autumn reached for her golden crown I looked behind as I heard a sigh But this was the time of no reply The sun went down and the crowd went home I was left by the roadside all alone I turned to speak as they went by But this was the time of no reply second song was Time of No Reply by Nick Drake. The man who signed me to my first record deal when I was a teenager, Ivo Watts Russell, sent me Nick Drake music, I think, right after we met, and said, this is you. And I was unsure, (laughs) because I had spent... Uh, I started playing when I was nine. I started my band when I was 14. So I I didn't know much else but this noise that I had made. And it was so, it's such a dreadful noise. So much <laughs> shame and um, like kind of spiraling uh, violence, I suppose. I loved the celebratory release of it. But I had no control over the impulse. I had no idea why I did what I did. I had heard it, though, and it didn't sound anything like Nick Drake. It was lovely. (laughs) Everything he did sounded so lovely. And I said to Ivo, he doesn't sound anything like me. And Ivo said, he's everything like you. He just doesn't sound anything like you. (laughs) And Nick Drake lived and died wishing that he had helped someone, just helped one person with his music, and essentially lived a life of time of no reply, which is a real thing. There are chapters we live where we reach out to the world and they don't show up. And that's an opportunity uh, to focus. It's an opportunity to feel abandoned and lonely, but who better to befriend than focus? And that's what he did. It's a valid life, and obviously his output was also valid. And it has helped, and that song has helped, because honestly, in a time where the only shame would be to turn your back on music, the musician's opportunity is going to be that focus and it will be alienating and could be lonely, but who better to befriend in a time of no reply? 
your description of, of our interpretation of that, I guess, makes me think kind of about our current moment when there are a lot of creative people sort of stuck at home um, and feeling a little cut off and maybe probably certainly feeling a lot less uh, financially secure than they had been before. And, you know, I guess I hope people are taking some advantage of that. And although, you know, maybe that's cold comfort if they're worried about a lot of other things. But it matters. Life comes in chapters and we don't choose them. And they're not all comfortable ones. The fact that we were tasked with attracting attention in the first place is such a sadness for the real musicians who are generally not real entertainers. We can perform because we have that focus and, you know, a listening venue is just that. It's the shape of a stage facilitates sound and the audience is standing where they can hear that sound. That's it. The fact that we, we monetized a spotlight through corporate venture in the entertainment industry and decided that attention was reflective of the populace is the misapprehension in that case. But a real live performance is a high. As a shy person, that's hard for me to admit, but it's a high for everyone in the room who is participating in that circular breathing and holding the piece of music up in the air together. It's sad to have it taken away, but hopefully we can learn to be quiet so that we can make the right noise when we come out. You know, I've read a bit about uh, Nick Drake, um, and I, I'm not deeply versed in, uh, in, in his life. Um, I wonder what it would have been like to see him perform. Um, it's hard to imagine him, you know, getting up on stage and saying, thank you, Cambridge. Glad to see you all tonight. Here's time of no reply. <laughs> yeah, he would agree. He he did one tour and it was lame, apparently, and nobody paid any attention. And I kind of love that. It's so beautiful. I know it must have hurt. Uh, but as someone who might as well be typing up there, <laughs> I know that music is happening without histrionics. This industry is so lost in a facsimile of passion that the showing off, the you know, flinging yourself around, lying about emotion and story, it's unfortunate. So I would actually like to see someone like Nick Drake. <laughs> I'm tired of being entertained. I want to be moved. Uh, frankly, I also think about the fact that uh, Nick Drake, if he were still around, he could still be around. He would be in his 70s. He you know, was a fairly uh, young man when he died. Um, and he made those kind of three perfect and pretty distinct records. And it's just, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I'm asking if you ever think about what else he might have done or what might have happened with the course he was on. My son's best friend just took his own life, and I had to be the one to tell him. And he said, now we know that Seamus was a perfect song. So I figure that kind of 
respect is what we need to afford those who are their own kind of perfect song, much as we want to have more. I can certainly take that answer. I'm sorry to hear that. Ah, oh, thank you. It's... It is what it is. But, oh, ouch. They would keep their dreams till another day So they stood and thought and wondered why The final song Hirsch chose as being crucial to her was Bakersfield by Vic Chestnut. awfully common a musician is a born thing I I don't see people being able to take lessons and become musicians you can develop a spark of um, being able to really to reach inspiration no matter who you are you can be very musical but um Facility is different from orientation, and the musical orientation does often seem to be inborn, and songwriter is just a branch of that. The songwriters I have known seem pregnant for their whole lives with these alive things that must be born, and it usually kills them. They usually die, these songwriters, and they often take their own lives. It's, you know... We know that, but I could see it in Vic, and so could he. And it often struck me that his perception of time was different from mine. I was going to last a lot longer than he did, and he would joke about the old man Vic with a shotgun on a porch, and we'd make plans for that, but... He just seemed to see time as different. He was a mayfly compared to the way I view life chapters. And um, I used to tell him, look, if you see time this way, then you you got to be here more than me every day. And he'd say, nah, I just want you to worry about me, you know. And I was like, I know, I'm going to worry no matter what, but this is your time and you... Uh, you can't waste it. None of us can, but you really can't. Like, if you're out of here, then you got to be here. And one of our ongoing debates was what that means. He thought he needed a legacy. I can't really see back in time. I, I'm not smart enough <laughs> to engage in the concept of legacy. I always have the next song in front of me. And he had this idea that he could speak to anyone with his music, not leave anybody out. And I would say, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> you, you weren't tasked with that. You were tasked 
with complexity. And he'd say, it's true, but that's just reflective of my condition. I can speak to anyone. Watch me do it. But the more he tried, the more he failed to speak to anyone. When he tried, he was not open to inspiration the way we all are. So uh, I used to tell him, just Bakersfield, just know that you are Bakersfield. And if you need a legacy, let it be Bakersfield. And uh, honestly, contrary to what I just said about people dying, he's one I can't let die. I, everybody else I can see is their perfect song. And I keep, I still reach for my phone to call Vic and forget that uh, he, he was his own kind of perfect song and it won't sit right with me. But he does have a legacy. And to me, it's Bakersfield. Well, you know, just some of the lyrics, it's strategy, not protocol, that brings me here. You know, it's like, I have a plan. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. He um, was always against what he called the niceties. He would say, oh, you're just a girl, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to be polite. It's like, then, then don't be polite. Make sure that your songs are as mean as they need to be. And when he did that, you know, when he reached for raw because he didn't know what else to do, that's when he would shine with all this sweetness. So, yeah, there's some some dark, but if someone is singing it to you, it's it's not dark as in pain. It's dark as in beautiful blackness. It is what it is. Well, and you really, um, you're getting at something there about that, you know, sort of let it be mean or let it be, uh, you know, just again, you know, I think this was on his first record and, and or one of his first records. Um, and even from then, I mean, I was still living in the South at that point, and there was something in it. That, I mean, the song is called Bakersfield, but there's something in those songs that I recognize as being sort of about, you know, where I was from. And it's like, this song in particular, it's called Bakersfield, but it's sort of, it feels to me like it could be about kind of small town dirt bags anywhere. And then in the middle, it kind of opens up into this with the holy platitudes and blow the gates and my albatrosses and it. You know, it does. It's sort of, it, it sort of, it, it, it takes this, it's speaking to anyone in the sense that it, it's sort of taking this small, um, you know, just a, a small town, uh, small world person and connecting them to this big crazy thing um i don't know if i'm doing a very good job of explaining what i that's perfect yeah and i'm from georgia um like vic and we used to talk about it a lot because he thought that he needed to be against stagnation um and because of the South. And I would say, but stagnation would be something um, ephemeral. You're not attached. You're going to live your timeless time because you know this, because this is your vocabulary. And he did embrace that. I I think he knows that, uh, you know, our, our accents would drop our IQs a bunch of points and he couldn't deal with the way 
people would South Bash. <laughs> and I would say, well, you know, it's just, they'll get there. <laughs> humans are humans, hearts are hearts, and a raw life is the only sensibility we are allowed to express in sound. And like it was a little angrier than I was about it or than you are about it, but it treated him well. Is it possible for you to sort of um, articulate w what effect he had on your own music? It is difficult for me to be influenced because of the unusual nature of my songwriting where I hear songs. But I know that sitting on stage with Vic for so many years uh, where we would just trade songs back and forth, his fluid timing taught me a lot. I, I was a very, very tight guitar player, and in my noise rock band, that's all it is, is just this tightness so that you can use spare and you can use mess and you can use movement when you need to. But I wasn't adept at thinking on my feet that way. I think it's hard to pull off jamming when you have a kind of math rock in your back pocket. <laughs> and Vic would drop into this very striking fluid timing. He could play bass lead and rhythm in the same song and this little nylon string acoustic. And you didn't know what was happening. The song would just kind of hang in the air and he'd try to cram as many syllables as he could. And I I've had to cover him before. <laughs> And I've had to play with him. And he'd say, just kick my ass. I ain't got no meter. <laughs> I'm like, well, I can't kick your ass because you ain't got no meter. <laughs> How do I play this? And that's what makes someone inimitable. But I did learn that the song does not want you to carry math rock in your back pocket at all times. <laughs> the song is going to hang in the air in different fashion in every room. So the people engaged in that circular breathing process are going to change your musical output. It's not yours. And if you think it is, it dies. So he, he taught me that. He taught me to breathe right in the middle of a song. And sometimes you break down. And that's not easy to live with. But sometimes you're fully present for as close to churches. We were ever going to Gabriel and Paul, and I will hide behind the garbage can. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Our production intern, Jonas Byers, edited this episode. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. That brings me here.